You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spirisavet and Elliot Goldberg. Hey, Elliot. Hi, John. I'm feeling very much like Eleanor in this episode of like wanting to stall the end of the the series of our Tove podcasts. <laughs> so I should say for for your benefit and the benefit of you who are listening that this is not the last podcast. We've got some other things in store. Coming up, we're going to have a chat with Professor Pamela Haranami, who is one of the philosophers who consulted to the show and who is in this episode, actually, along with Todd May, the other philosopher. They're in the scene the seminar in Chidi's room there. And so that'll be awesome. And we will continue to invite the fans, listeners, if you've got any things you want to throw at us or record for us, whatever, we want to make something out of that and uh, plus more. So I don't feel an obligation that we have to like wrap up the show or even potentially wrap up this episode, which is so, as you were saying, like, it's so amazing. Isn't this a great episode? This is a great episode. I forgot how much I loved it. And then I rewatched it you know, again, in prep, you know, just to make sure it was fresh. I was like, oh, I'm so glad I picked this one. <laughs> or I think it was really, I'm so glad this was the only one left when I needed to sign up for my last one. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, like, even though, of course, you can watch him over and over on demand, I was sort of pushing off doing it. And uh, so I was literally walking in an overcast and chilly morning, which is exactly what Chidi says is like his favorite memory of that day, walking through his old neighborhood oh, yeah. in Paris, which is awesome. And in real time, like in the real lifetime when we're recording, as opposed to the people who are listening to this on a, a spaceship to Alpha Centauri, you know, in the future, there's a lot going on in the world of great series, TV conclusions like Ted Lasso and stuff. Yeah. Succession. At the risk of losing our especially more younger listeners, I'm just wondering if you have any recollections of great TV finales from growing up. Well, the classic for our generation was the end of MASH. Mm. I don't know about in your house. During dinner, we watched the evening news. Both. We watched, you know, NBC and then CBS. So we saw an hour of evening news. You had to see, you know, Broca and Cronkite. (laughs) <laughs> but then MASH came on. So if dinner was, you know, we didn't start always when the news started, but MASH was like a rerun right after the news. So we watched the news and then we watched MASH. If that was like my childhood. And then there were still new ones coming out that, you know, were prime, not, not dinner fair. I feel like that was the first big finale of something. And it was two hours instead of a half hour. And Alan Alda directed was almost like a, you know, a movie as opposed to like the half hour sitcom. That like shattered me when it went off the air. We, we won't, again, for those listeners who aren't familiar with MASH, but that was exactly what I was thinking of. We'll put a couple of things in the notes. Some people say that was the most watched finale and continues to be in, in all of history. And yeah. it actually sort of the same pattern, which was of, of people leaving one by one. MASH was a, a sitcom that was set in a a medical unit in in Korea during the war. And that's what happened. They one by one left. And I actually started to doodle. I'll put this in the notes too. Like which of those characters on MASH are parallel to which characters in The Good Place. Yeah. And that's oh, interesting. Yeah. It's worth noting that like the, the big audience in part, it's such, I'm just thinking about how different that era was because mm. there were fewer options. So people watch MASH, like everybody watch MASH. <laughs> yeah. And you had, no, it wasn't about I'm streaming, you know, individual shows, audiences have shrunk as there are more options. So according at least to Wikipedia, 60% of all televisions in America watched that finale the night it aired. So nothing like that. They should have watched, yeah. they should watch that many people should watch the Good Place finale at one time or another. The other thing I will mention about TV finales is that one of at least the top three sitcom finales was cheers in terms of viewership oh, so there's ted yeah. danson and uh, wow yeah cheers was a show that we would watch my family my dad would allow us to watch even if it was on during dinner oh. yeah classic classic comedy i watched the first four or five with my kids and they were like wait this is they're always in the bar what's that about <laughs> like, well it's a sitcom do you know what that means it's situation <laughs> comedy that's the situation. Like they didn't grow up with like Taxi and Barney Miller, the sitcom, you know, now there are more scenes. There's more, more places they go 
Yeah. In a good place. But it used to be the sitcom was you were in the same room for the whole show in a lot of them. There was a power to that. It was a different kind of drama or comedy. Yeah, definitely. And so this is obviously not Jewish at all, but I think there's something about the the archetype of this group of diverse people type of comedy, you know, which has its morality dimensions, which was originally probably Gilligan's Island. There might have been something before that. <laughs> in my in I reference that in my season one ending little monologue about how I even think the theme song of the Good Place the Diddy is a little similar to the Gilligan's Island music. Oh, that's interesting. Re- reprise that. But anyway, I, I guess I should stop the stalling and we should probably jump in. Yeah. Elliot, I would say though I found this as I'm thinking about finales, one more thing to to add, I just think about the more recent, the controversial finale was The Sopranos. Mm. I don't know if you watched The Sopranos, where like half the audience was angry <laughs> at how it ended. I happen to love that that finale of The Sopranos, and it made me think as I watch this one again to say, oh, people probably if you like the show, you probably liked how The Good Place ended. Not that it, not that it was safe. I think there's a lot to talk about about this episode in terms of like the questions they've been asking. But the yeah. Sopranos, like for some people, is like a 180. They got no answers and they wanted a lot of answers. Yeah, you know, it's neat. So I will say that one of the things I particularly loved in this episode was toward the end when when Eleanor is pitching the idea to Michael of his going back as a human and saying, "The truth is, you don't know if it's going to still work this way. Like all this thing we've been telling you." We don't know, which is a nice thing to say to the viewer. And it, it does make me think one of the great series enders, I think, is the Torah, which also doesn't really end with an ending. <laughs> Moshe goes up on the mountain, but but then his people go on after him. And then we do a rewatch, like we immediately go back to. Yeah, the I have to say, that's my least favorite finale. The Torah? Yeah. Oh, wow. Like. You are a rabbi. I am, but no, I, it, paint, I, it challenges me uh-huh. that Moses worked hard. He wasn't perfect, but so one, we consider God to be a forgiving God, often in Judaism, but Moses doesn't get that forgiveness. And I know there's all this stuff about transitional leadership that we like to say he had his job and now it's Joshua's turn, but like, I just want him to have a villa in the Galilee Hills. <laughs> <laughs> where he could retire like no one he doesn't he, him his family like he the, you know the same way you know the Torah says we don't know where he's buried mm-hmm. it could be we don't know where his villa is on which mountain but he should get to go into israel and live out his life there as opposed to that's it I, it's so painful to me but every year i'm hopeful that like it'll turn out different you know <laughs> I, I go back into the you know, we're getting there. We're getting near the end in the Torah also now. And I'm like, this year, this year, I know my kids will tell you, I say this every year, God's <laughs> going to forgive Moses and Moses is going to get to go to Israel. It's going to happen this year. And then I, I, I it sinks me every wow. Torah. It's, it's like the most painful part of my Jewish living, reading again that Moses dies. Wow. So I'm now, oh, I'm sorry. I'm interrupting you there. Oh, no, that's fine. I could go uh, on and on about this. No, I'm just thinking, yeah, this is, uh, this is ama- no, this is, ama- and, and this is clearly releasing us from, you know, the longer we talk, the less we have to cover the full finale in one of our Tove episodes. But I've been thinking, you know, periodically about Michael as the, the M, the, the Hebrew Mem of Mordechai from the Purim story. But now I'm thinking of Michael as Moses, Moshe, and maybe, yeah, like in this version, he's already transitioned out, you know, Vicky is Joshua. And, yeah. but he gets to hang around and, and he also gets to work on his guitar lyrics. And right. then when he's, when he's ready, he goes to the next thing. So, right. wow, that and would he be goes cool. back to, but he goes back to Egypt. <laughs> Interesting. That would be a cool. So you'll have to write this up as a fan fiction of our Torah for next year yeah. when we get to this part of the Torah. Yeah, maybe I will say you just mentioned his, his song. I love the outro that they got a, a band to play it. <laughs> <laughs> It, they gave Michael the kavod of the honor of we're gonna we're gonna produce your song. <laughs> I, it made me laugh. Like after enjoying the whole episode, there's one more treat. And I know that Elliot appreciates this treat. I say to you who are listening because I've heard Elliot lead a a group in Steve Martin's. What's the name of that song from his? Oh, from his gentle and gracious. No, the one that you led was the grandmother's song. Oh, I thought I did atheist. Dirty is kind and forgiving. 
He has a song, Atheists Have No Songs. That sounds good, but that's not what I was thinking of. And I just oh. mostly because of the whimsy of the. Got it. Uh, well, this one is that too. Atheist has no song, no songs. It's about how every faith tradition has their songs that they're singing, that they sing. But atheists uh, on Sundays, they sit on their couch in their underwear and watch football <laughs> <laughs> or they sing the blue. Like, it's about, you know, if you're atheist, you don't have good music yeah. in your tradition, but uh, religious traditions have good music. Interesting. Believe it or not. So maybe not you, it could be I did the grandmother song. It's, I, I, I've been known to sing that. So anyway. I, I, yes. And as to the atheist thing, I have, it, it'll come up later when I have a mini critique of what is otherwise a beautiful scene in this oh, episode. But sure. tell us the summary, Elliot, of this episode. All right. Here we go. Chapter 52 and 53, When You're Ready, written and directed by our friend Michael Shore. The new afterlife system is working smoothly. Jason is the first of the group to decide to leave after playing the perfect game of Madden NFL. Janet leads Jason to the door in the woods. Walking through will allow him to leave. It turns out that Jason didn't go immediately, having lost a necklace he made for Janet and then spent a very long time looking for her. Tahani's parents arrive and apologize for their treatment of her and Camilla, but Tahani realizes she doesn't want to leave and asks if she can become an architect, which Michael arranges. Eleanor suspects that Chidi is getting ready to leave, so she takes him to Athens and Paris, important places from his life. Then remembering what he has taught her, Eleanor tells him it's okay if he decides to go. Eleanor and Michael struggle to find fulfillment. Eleanor even goes to Mindy St. Clair and convinces her to enter the system. Michael tries to leave, but the door won't work for him. So Eleanor persuades the judge to make Michael human. As Michael real man, he begins life on earth, reveling in the simple human things he had always talked about. And Eleanor is finally ready to leave. She walks through the door and becomes a series of sparks, one of which seems to drift down to a man on earth who then decides to return a wrongly delivered letter to Michael as he looks at the offer of membership to Coyote Joe's with excitement. Michael thanks the man and tells him, take it sleazy. Hmm. This is mostly drawn from Wikipedia's summary. I don't know who to credit for that. I didn't look that up, but it was, it was really nice. Wikipedia, it's from all of us. We've yes, crowdsourced it. We all have all a little piece. <laughs> You don't write regularly for Wikipedia? I have written a couple of things. But, okay. But uh, so, gosh, we usually laugh and we, we should, but I, I certainly cried a couple of times, even knowing what was coming, watching it again. Yes, uh, yeah. me too. I think mostly when Janet was seeing off Michael, yeah, physical, the thing about the blood pressure, you have blood now. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. wow. I had, when Eleanor says to Chidi, let's go to sleep, but don't you know? Leave before I wake up. Mm. That was the the highest number of Kleenexes. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I In was, this episode for me, yeah, tissues. I, I should say, tissue, unless tissue. Kleenex would like to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> we might have to. Get now that we're done, we have to clear. <laughs> now that we're almost mentioned done, right? <laughs> of yeah. Kleenexes. I was very jarred to see Camilla and Tahani. To see Camilla not in her rock star slash art celebrity. Yes, I I found I it was wonderfully the visuals, the costuming changes, Tahani and her overalls and stuff like that was was tremendous. Though. Yeah, it's not the text I chose, but it, it now that you say that, there's a certain evening at like everyone drifts back towards sort of that golden road in the middle. Like Maimonides mm. talks about, you got to live your life between the extremes, like in the middle. And I feel like eternity in the afterlife softens your extremes. Wow. Except for maybe Jason, who still has to play Matt. He has to he has to play the perfect game of it's about the perfect game of Madden, not you know, millions of games of Madden. That was the other thing. So lush that that stadium VR setup or whatever he was yeah. in. Or I guess, you know, he was really in a, a neighborhood look of that. That was pretty cool. Well, right. When you when your IT department are the eternals, <laughs> are the demons turned, I don't know what we call them now. They're still right. demons, I guess, but they're not the demons they used to be. You can have a pretty good virtual video game system. I even laughed and cried at the the doorman's Mr. Jumpy Legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even though I'd seen it a million times, I, you know, 
they they pause enough to think this, but I'm like, he's gonna name him Michael. And I knew he wasn't gonna do it, but I'm like, maybe this time he's gonna name him Michael. <laughs> You know, it made me think of a sort of Frozen thing where in the song about Olaf, the snowman's song about where you're supposed to hear the word puddle, you know, put me in the sun and I'll, and I'll turn into, and there's a beat, happy snowman. And so oh, yeah. a, few, a few neat moves like that. There was, uh, there was some, I thought, nice little drop-ins like... I have to say, and again, this this may be again dating me for sure, aging me for sure. Early on, when when they're sitting around the table, Michael and Sean and the others, and Sean was talking about how I will never, ever, 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 ever. whatever like this. That that is a great which I'll which I'll put in either the notes or I'll flip in here a great callback to a Saturday Night Live debate where they were mocking president george bush's thing about that he would never again you know raise taxes and i will never ever 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 yeah <laughs> any great lines that you had any any laughs yes I, I this is to me feels like so obvious after the fact to like love this part but jason not leaving and that whole scene where he comes back <laughs> after it's been many baramies <laughs> Many Baramis since he left. And so I love that scene with both how long he was there for. I love the, you know, his parting, you know, his term for of endearment to Janet is not not a girl. And then, you know, Janet takes the day by saying, you've been sitting in the woods, you know, turns out you're a monk after all. Yeah. I just thought that was like, it was just such a perfect end for Jason even though I would have been complete had he not shown up again. <laughs> His first end was good, but this goodbye was just so touching and funny and all mixed up. You know, it's the right balance of all the emotions that like it's the good place at its perfect. You're laughing and crying at the same time. Yeah. And some people have said that like Jason is the one who changes the least in, in a way, but he also he has a way of taking your breath away with these articulations. Yeah. And then, like what you're saying about, you know, like a monk, and he's like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was perfect. And I do have to recommend Michael Schur's interview on the the NBC podcast, where he really walks through this episode with uh, with Mark Evan Jackson with Sean. It's a great commentary the whole way through. I really like this thing at the end as Tahani is crossing the last thing off her list. Uh, problematically objectify Eleanor. Oh yeah. <laughs> I love the chair. Her carpentry teacher is someone we recognize, right? Isn't that the guy from this old house or something? Oh, it's the it's Nick Offerman. Oh, Nick Offerman. No, he reminds me of the guy from this old house. But oh, doesn't yeah. he do carpentry? It's just a perfect. I, I don't think know. So, yeah. See, that's how good Nick Offerman was. I know him as Nick Offerman, but <laughs> I was sure he was the guy from this old house. Oh, now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Sorry, I'm cracking myself up at that. Now the 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 she's moved on to podcasts. The judge. Oh yes, the judge. Yeah, that still mystifies me in terms of the frame of the show. Like, why would the, this all-knowing being, who's still sort of in control of this whole thing, she still needs television and podcast? Like, she's still consuming <laughs> human entertainment. Like that. I think that's the place where they're just mocking, you know, religious people like us. It's I'm not sure there's any metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, be drawn. Maybe a little bit. I shouldn't. I shouldn't entirely say that. It's. Well, I think it's funny because it's it's ludicrous that she has a you know a very human hobby. I also just took that you know there's like a billion of them and they just keep coming, and that's what we're doing. It <laughs> is just adding to the billions of podcasts in the world. I really also liked. I mean, I chuckled you know, when Michael is attempting to go through the door and he can't, and they're asking what he's doing. Oh, yeah. Turning my damn essence to the damn fabric of the damn universe. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. It was physically great. It was verbally great. There was a neat little thing at the very end. This is not really funny or, or sad, but his door that he closes is red on his apartment, Michael Realman. And they've made a big thing about how, especially in the early part of the show, they never showed Michael in red at all because they never wanted to do anything to tip off that he might be a demon or a devil. Oh, so They had strict orders that he would never wear red and there'd be never anything red in his office. And so that's a really neat... Here, red, I think, is much more like blood than evil. But it was a neat little yeah. button on, on Michael's transformation from the red of the lava monster to to the red of the... Right. Human. That's a cute scene. There's the nice callback because there was 
previous return, Eleanor returns the wallet and when she goes back to Earth. So I felt like he's benefiting from the kindness of another human by getting his Coyote Joe's card because the letter was lost in the mail. Yeah. Like I felt like that person who makes an ethical decision, it, you know, there's not the point system anymore, but, you know, has perfected that, you know, Hashabat Avedat, you know, returning a lost object. I thought it was nice that that human encounter we see, the human there represents the good of humanity and not the silliness of humanity. Yeah. Represented in <laughs> the membership card. <laughs> which he did ask for, apparently. So that's that's awesome. I will get up on my, on my soapbox here. I have to parenthetically say that some of you might be listening to what I advertised on the last episode, which is that I was speaking at the, the Valley Bait Midrash doing a Zoom presentation. Not so great, I don't think, that I did of trying to encapsulate some of the big picture things that I've learned from this rewatch. But the one thing I did, at least in the preparation, which I hope I'm, I'll spin out and to figure out some way to present, are the many iterations of Teshuva of return and all the ways that's been our central, my feeling of our central metaphor here about change. And you mentioned returning lost objects, Hashavat Aveda, same Hebrew root. But even that is, you know, Eleanor's turning point in season three in Australia when she was about to leave them entirely involved her discovering that she had a, like a letter or a wallet, I guess, that she had to return. And it seems like it's her, that sort of represents then her, in a way, chuva essence in that spark that gets... Right. Uh, left on that guy and that that you know the idea that someone else's chuva can sort of become your chuva is something i've been spinning around since well since this morning when i thought of it yeah i also love in this scene it didn't strike me like michael can't get the guitar down let alone his command of poetry but he gets a teacher and that's like it didn't strike me that his desire to perfect this in this afterlife he was just doing it on his own you know, they all had access, you know, there were all these shout outs to famous people they met in the afterlife and what they learned from them. It's like, there had to be musicians, but it wasn't until he became a person that he, he went to learn from someone. Mm. And, you know, as an educator, I love that moment where the teacher says, you know, we all need a teacher. Mm. You know, it's the Pirkei Avot, you know, from the Mishnah, right? Get, get a teacher, acquire friends, and like, that's all he needed to learn the E chord, I think it was. Yeah. He just needed a guitar teacher. Like, you can't do it on your own. And for me, I felt really, I think that's a great point, but it was extra because somehow it never occurred to Michael until now that he could get help with this. And I, I feel like that's not Shuva, but that's like personal growth for him. Hmm. He got help from the other main characters on this quest for the afterlife, but it felt like that was framed more that they convinced him to do something different and then they were teammates. He was helping them with their project. This was like his project, his personal project, and he was stuck. And all he needed was a guitar teacher. Mm-hmm. And that opened it all up for him. I love that. I like that more than the other, you know, the other moments of him back on earth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, neat. I was thinking a lot about the, you know, and this could be, I I wrote down in my notes, Torah Palooza, like there's no single teaching. You've quoted a couple already. I have too. And initially I thought when I was anticipating watching the episode again, that it's, yeah, okay, they're going to kind of tie things up in a bow. But in the same way that they grabbed every character and every like main side player and Mindy and Donkey Dog and everybody, essentially they kind of tapped every significant teaching in a way that they had mentioned yeah. reference kind of philosophically and brought it back in some way while also managing to add a little more and so some in some ways i just want to make a video of like labeling those things i don't know that that any one of them was like oh they like nailed like a new conclusion but they just added right. a little layer on each of those things i did want to see the next cheaty class because he had a guest teacher doing the trolley problem I wanted to do that again. Yes. <laughs> I just made a shout out to it, but I was like, oh, let's do that again. Let's see what, <laughs> let's see how now all these people react to that scenario. I was excited, but then of course, you know, it was just a shout out. It was Yes, and that was actually Professor Hieronymy who said that's gonna be my next class. Right. She's, she's that's coming. what I learned from she's your coming opening. Here. Yeah. I yeah. learned from the opening. I, I knew they weren't regular actors. I didn't know it was a bit role by the people who yeah. built the show. 
Yeah. That's, that's like when there's a rabbi in a movie or something. And instead of an actor being tapped, they tapped one of our colleagues. You know, every once in a while, like there's a wedding scene in a movie. I'm like, wait, I know that person. <laughs> they figure better to get someone who knows how to do this as opposed to an actor to pretend how to do yes. it. Yeah. This was sort of that moment of let's get the moral philosophy professors and let them have their day on screen. I wonder if they have to join the union for that. <laughs> I wonder what the rules are. Yeah, yeah. So I will I will just drop in here in the spirit of my own randomness that in the scene of Chidi and Eleanor there last night, which I did love, and that was definitely a crying moment. I would say a couple of things. I'll say the critique first, and then I'll loop back to the sure. thing I appreciate it. The critique is that he he says that, you know, Locke and all those people are about rules and regulations, and for spiritual stuff, you have to turn to the East. And that I have to say, like, I, I understand why they said that, but I didn't think that was fair, because, I mean, the show has been all about... It, it wasn't fair in both directions. One is that even that metaphor of the water and the wave, which he said so lovely, yeah. is, at least has been incorporated into Judaism, particularly through, through Hasidic thought. I've read that those very things by Hasidic masters and Lawrence Kushner. Uh, so we have that. But the other thing is that there are these amazing Eastern philosophers who also do ethics. And, and contemporary, I just want to, Marya Sen is the one who has a book even called The Idea of Justice, which is, you know, a work of moral philosophy in which he tries to integrate, I think, the Western notions that we're so familiar with from the, the major conceptions of the show with, with some Eastern ideas from even the classic Eastern religious texts. And I, I yeah. attempted to start to read it, and, and I mean, I've, I've, I've attempted to read it and digest it and, and need to go through. But what I did, I super love that that was another Chuva moment because in season one, it was the, it was the fifth episode where Chidi was saying how he knows intellectually that it would be, be a lot of good to teach Eleanor. Like he can't, all he wants to do is, what is it? I think go out in the middle of a lake with French poetry and a bottle of wine and, and that we yeah. get that first kind of lake scene. And now, now here it is again. And it's so different. I both was like, took my breath away and, and cried. And yeah, it's amazing. I love that moment, right? I liked how he turned to something separate from his knowledge base. But I think your critique is, I mean, it's a show that was produced in Western culture. So it was based in Western thought, but in that notion that Eastern thought, like the stereotype that was there of the two schools of thought, I, I like what you're saying that wasn't accurate and did neither of them justice. And it's an oversimplification to say Western thought is this and Eastern thought is that. And your question is about Eastern, you know, it, it worked for the scene and the metaphor was beautiful and where it went. But that way of thinking doesn't do justice to either tradition. Yeah, yeah. And I would be interested for many listeners who are more familiar, way more than I am, who are hardly familiar with Eastern philosophy or religion at all, to fill that in, too. Yeah. The idea there, in a way, loops back to something I think you want to tell us about, so I'll save my thought about the substance of it. But you mentioned before we, we got on a couple of things, and one of this is this figure about Eliyahu, Elijah from the Bible, and I would love for you to throw that in here. Oh, Sure. Elijah is a prophet in the Bible, and what's a unique element of his story is that he doesn't die. When his time on earth comes to an end, he's lifted up to the heavens in a fiery chariot, sort of a mystical scene. But as a result of that, Elijah becomes a character in the folklore of different generations of Jewish imagination. And in starts with the rabbis in the Talmud where... Eliyahu comes back, Elijah comes back and visits earth. And there are many stories about rabbis encountering him. And when they encounter him, the rabbis often ask him to help settle some rabbinic disputation about a matter of law or ask him, like, what's God doing? <laughs> and, you know, he has some story that you know, there are different instances where different things happen. Or what, or what is God thinking? What is God, right, what is God doing? What is God thinking? Or how did God respond to this thing that happened down on earth? And then it continues past the Talmud where Eliyahu becomes a figure who, in essence, he's visiting the earth that we, we each might have our own encounter with Eliyahu and Navi, you know, with Elijah the prophet at a moment where we need guidance. You know, it becomes like that mysterious stranger you meet who sets you on the right path. If that happened to you, it could be that wasn't a stranger. That was Elijah the prophet. You have your own Elijah story. But it struck me 
in a way, it's not a perfect metaphor, but Michael's going back down to earth from the heavenly court. The heavens that Elijah went to are not the heavens that Michael lives in. <laughs> uh, but he manifests in human form. Actually, as I'm thinking about this, it's almost it's like the reverse of Christian theology, right? Where Jesus starts human, becomes divine. This is like going backwards. But um, there's a way in which Michael on earth sort of, you know, he's embedded there like Elijah. I just mm. like that. You know, we don't know the story. Maybe that's that's the sequel. <laughs> Michael on Earth and his adventures. There's a sitcom for that. If that's what Ted Dotson wants to do next, there's <laughs> a Better Call Saul of the good. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a, there's a. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah. No, go ahead. That was it. No, I was going to say that I think when you when you suggested this, it made me look back both to Michael, particularly back in the season two, season three, Hinge, Zach Pizzazz, and the one who's coming to do the nudges to get everybody to Australia. And right. Oh yeah. That, that they don't know that that's who it is. That it's Elijah, so to speak. And, right. That fits um, better. Yeah. But also that they all essentially become in that season. They all become like Elijah because they all go back to play that role for Eleanor's mom, for for Donkey Doug, and all of that. And and I think I feel like the last few episodes have been a lot also about bringing that back. That there's some connection between the existence of the people in that middle stage we're gonna know about well you're in the good place after you passed your test but you can still but even if not you go back you encounter the good place the heavenly test you get something you bring it back down and i love this i've really been been playing with this not even just playing with it i mean as i i've mentioned before even it's been a an interesting period in my rabbinic life of just a number of funerals and things and it's really made me think about how to tap into that sense of not denying that death is real but that there's some permeation that's going on between the realms which i never used to think yeah. certainly 10 20 years ago i was not into that at all and but that it does require activity on our side and maybe it requires activity on the spirit side the soul all side right. although what's interesting to me about this is ultimately there's a way in which this afterlife that's been the redesigned afterlife, well, the original afterlife and the redesigned afterlife are not fulfilling that at some point you're done. Hmm. I mean, they are eons compared to the, the small amount of time you live, but it, it struck me that that's what Michael wants. What's the authentic life for him? He wants to be a person and he wants to be a person. And, you know, he jumps in, but his physical appearance is similar. It's whatever age. Ted Danson is now, or maybe, you know, younger, because, right, Hello, the guy so Ted fine. Danson yeah. and looks, you know, he captures the youth, you know, not of a 12-year-old, but not of the, his actual age, what chronological age, which I don't know what that is, but <laughs> so, but he's stepping into earth with human frailty midlife, near, you know, and, but those, whatever those years are, 40 years, 30 years, that's the thing he wants more than anything. Yeah, um, yeah. And to me, that was a statement of, as we speculate about what that next world is and what it's like there, and the show gave us options and our tradition gives us other options. Ultimately, I found in the end, like Michael's choice is a statement that says, and I think Judaism in a lot of ways says this in mm. many places too, that life is about this world. Mm. Even though the next world appears in our tradition in different places and we have our version of the point system that shows up and, you know, we have our version of the judgment that you're going to get. But the vast majority of classic Jewish thinking is about what matters is this world. Yeah. And Michael just wants that. He wants a taste. It's like he wants a taste of this world and he's willing to give up who he is to get that. Yeah. I found that to be the most powerful thing in this episode. Yeah, the certainty of, of eternity. And I think when Eleanor and, J and Janet are talking, and I was surprised because I didn't remember this, what are your top three memories of this whole experience? And the only real thing that Janet said was was watching you guys decide that what you should do is help others on earth. I, that feels very Jewish to me. Yeah. Um, and Janet I, was I, so interesting in this episode because she, she's still Janet, but Janet, even the way she spoke and stood was a flat character. There's so much complexity to her now. And I found that to be awesome. And I think like the way in which she she dealt with the goodbyes, I thought it was fun to watch. Yeah. And I think that, you know, she talks about, you know, even to Jason in bed there about, I don't experience time the way you do. 
and yeah. that's certainly a perspective you know that the universe has but then this other thing the michael the elijah paradigm you're applying is that you can experience that connection but you have to kind of pass through you have to go elijah in our tradition has to at least kind of visit earth in order to get to have it mean anything that he has any eternal life at all and i think about how in our tradition he comes at the passover seders or when baby boys are born yeah. to say, i want to check out if something redemptive is starting yeah right here yeah well have you met alien on this planet i'm sure i have i don't know i don't know oh have I, you I, I met Alien Avi, but it turned out it was our teacher, Neil Gilman, before I knew him. <laughs> and he pointed you in a direction? Well, I, I was sitting on the, the bench. I'm sure you sat on it too, outside the room where the rabbinical school interviews are. I was the last one to go during the day. So the student who was supposed to accompany me until I was my turn went home. And I didn't know the lights were on motion detectors. So I was sitting still because I was just waiting for my interview. And then the lights in the hall would go out and then I would move and turn them on. Although I didn't see the cause and effect. So I was having this weird, I'm alone in a hallway before interviewing for this panel to decide if I could be a rabbi or not. There's this weird thing going on with the lights and a door to an office opens and a puff of smoke comes out because Neil Gilman was a pipe smoker. <laughs> Which, and this man in a trench coat with a hat, you know, and a mustache and a you know, goatee or whatever he had, walks out. He walks right to the elevator in front of me, presses the button. He knows why I'm sitting there, because all the students had to be for the interview. He looks over at me, looks at the elevator. The elevator comes, and right before he gets in, he turns to me, and he says, when you go in there, remember, we need people to be rabbis. Ooh. And then he walks in the elevator, and he, like, goes away wow. and like somehow that calmed all my anxiety like wow. i don't know if this was a, i never asked him about it but his intention i think was what i understood it to mean was you're going in with all this anxiety about wanting to get in but you know we want people to get in. you know we're on your the committee's on your side they're not looking for a reason to keep you out they want the answer to be yes at the end of the day and that changed my day wow that was my i feel like that was my alien on the v moment and later i learned Oh, it was Neil Gimmett who became my theology professor and someone who both his pedagogy and his theology were highly influential on me. So I felt like I had my Eliyahu and Avi moment and then I got to hang out with Eliyahu and Avi because it turned out <laughs> it was Neil <laughs> Gilman. So that's great. That's my Eliyahu and Avi story. Cool. You want to bring us the next thing? Sure. Happy to. So it's a story that's in the Talmud for, for those who want to look it up, it's Sechek Dubot, page 104. Dubot is, the main topic is the marriage contract, um, but not everything in the Talmud follows the topic of the day. And there's a story there about the last day, the day Rabbi Yehuda Nasi died. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is a rabbi from the end of the second, beginning of the third century. And uh, he's credited by the rabbis as being the, the editor of the Mishnah. Now, under his leadership, the rabbis took the oral tradition and recorded it, in part in response to the tough times they were having under the Roman Empire, which is a topic for a different podcast, maybe. <laughs> but his death is a big loss because he was a leader that helped transform Judaism and give us a text of the oral law, which led to centuries of discussion, debate, guidance for how Jews should live. And it was essentially it, revising the whole system as the good place is. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. He helped transform Judaism from a temple-based. This project helped transform Judaism from a temple-based Judaism with no temple because it was gone to uh, rabbinic Judaism, which in some way, shape, or form, all modern Judaism connect comes from in some way, even those that are further away from it. And the rabbis are distraught by the fact that he's dying. His colleagues. So they declare public fasts and they pray for mercy to the heavens so that he won't die, that God won't take him. And even to the point that they say, anyone who says that Rabbi Yudanasi has died will be stabbed with a sword. They issue an edict. If you utter the fact that he's dead or he's already dead or he's mm -hmm. dead, like, you know, in <laughs> this condition that he's in, we're going to, you know, we're going to stab you with the sword, which it's a little violent for the rabbis, but, you know, the severity of that. So the story says his maidservant goes up to the roof of his house 
where there's no air conditioning in those days, probably to get some air clear ahead, but it's up to the roof, maybe closer to heaven. And she prays, but first she reflects, the heavens are requesting Rabbi Yudan Asi, the heaven, right? He's, God is requesting him. We see that because he's dying. And the lower realm, earth, the people on earth are requesting him because the rabbis are praying to keep him alive. And she prays, may it be the will of God that the lower world should impose the will on the upper world. Let Rabbi Yudan Asi stay alive. You know, people should win out over God on this. But then she watches him take off his tefillin, his phylacteries, which the rabbis, well, modern day Jews who wear tefillin, wear them for the morning service. In the rabbinic times, we read about the tradition that they wore them all day, but not when they went to the bathroom. So like if he would get up from his sickbed to go to the bathroom, he would have to unwrap these straps from his arm and take it off his head. And she saw how much of a struggle it was to get up. He was suffering from an intestinal disease. So he was, I guess, moving from his bed to the, I guess, outhouse, whatever it was in the day. Mm -hmm. And she sees how much is suffering and she changes her prayer and says, may it be the will of God that the upper worlds impose their will on the lower worlds. And so this is one moment I thought connected where it's not about the person realizing that they're done and time to move on, but here it's the caregiver. Rabbi Yudanasi's maidservant realizes it's time for him to go and is at peace with it. But there's one more piece to the story. The rabbis won't stop praying. And it, the text implies the prayer is effective. So he's kept alive because of the prayer. Mm-hmm. So what does she do while she's on the roof? She takes this big jug, which must have been ceramic, throws it off the roof. And it shatters on the ground. It makes this loud noise. The rabbis stop their prayer to look. It's like a instinctual reaction we have when you hear a I don't know, a bus backfire, right? Or something. <laughs> you, you you stop and you turn and you look and that pause in their prayer is the moment that God seizes upon, according to the story. And that's when he dies and moves on. So it struck me that this story is about uh, some of the themes of the show, knowing, but it's the afterlife in the good place, not life, but knowing when you're done and when you're complete and when it's time to move on. And some of it's about the Eleanor Chidi story about you might be ready but the people who love you aren't. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with that difference of opinion? Whose decision is it anyways? And in our realm, which this story is, is written in, you know, I think it speaks to us about both confronting our own mortality, but also those of loved ones about when do we have to let go? Cause it's time for the person to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I just, there's something about this story that really, resonated with so many parts of this episode and the questions it's asking, even though the contexts are so different. Yeah, I really like that juxtaposition because I, I was very struck in this episode how much of the conversation was, well, it was seemingly about when do I think I'm done with my project of existence, but how much that was really wrapped up with what, what do I mean to other people? And like even Tahani defining her project is like, okay, I've reconciled with my parents. How many times can we sit there together and listen to them say, I love you? Right. <laughs> and that, that that's the question like that. That's in play. It's a real question. Yeah. For some people that is the thing. Yes. Why would you put that to an end? Like that's a real question you have to have an answer to. And the story, I guess, doesn't say about Yehuda and Nasi, Rabbi Yehuda, whether, whether he has a view about it. Is he done? Right. Yeah. And we don't know. We know he's suffering, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't speak in the story. This is about the perspective of others. Hmm. But there was a lot. I mean, we didn't hear from the, the only, well, with Chidi and Eleanor, we hear from both. And then with Janet and Jason. Yeah. In some ways, what strikes me about this story in contrast to Janet, some ways Janet has it best because she doesn't experience time. She doesn't really lose her encounter with Jason when he goes, because the memories are the same as living them. Yeah, it's interesting, because what she's saying is that we know, actually, even from neuroscience, that the brain has a different experience of remembering something and, and living through it. There's some yeah. wonderful stuff that Daniel Kahneman has talked about. His his TED Talk on the thinking fast and slow has, has got some great stuff on that. So in that sense, like it's real for her. But when Janet has to think about letting go of Michael, that's the one place where, you know, like oh, yeah. the same, they have the same reality or they're yeah. the same experience of Barami time. And right. I guess that's when it, when it affects her. Well, she goes into like parent mode. She's like, I felt like she was his mom then. Yeah. <laughs> and she didn't do that to Jay. Her relationship with Jason is different. 
Yeah. And yeah. It, and interesting, because I think as I'm thinking about this, the way you're describing and reminding us too about Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, is that his whole thing essentially was that he, he came up with a way for the memories to be alive. You know, things are preserved in a memorable way in the Mishnah for his students and in the yeah. name of the people who say them. And we have all these teachings about a person who says something in the name of the teacher who, who said yeah. it. It's like they're, they're giving them life again. So super interesting. And, yeah, well, and in some way, not physically, but within the tradition, Rabbi Udanasi is alive and well. Hmm. There are lots of stories about him that are compelling that we're telling almost 2,000 years later. Like how many people get that? Yeah. And I think the Eleanor Chidi thing is very interesting as it would have been so interesting in the Talmudic story for the maidservant and the students to kind of get together on this because Eleanor has her moment of reflection. She's got a book that she has read, which yeah. she has taught her that helps her process like what he means to her. I'm astounded by this thought that it's in other people's, if not in other people's control, at least like other people's interest. That, yeah. that is that is the primary thing. And it was, it, it was, I think one of the wonder, and in that way, it's a very not American way of looking at this. You know, they introduced this sense of your, as you're saying, your purpose. Have I fulfilled my existence right. in the universe to all it but 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 there's nothing individual about that and except for mindy st Clair, and i we didn't mention this before like that was the other crying oh moment. yeah i'm so glad that they did that because because she represents the voice of someone who can't even see herself as being worth herself or anybody else considering and right. so, so that conversation couldn't even take place until eleanor found a way to connect with her it couldn't even open that conversation she was the one person outside the system yeah yeah. So now you can say nobody is outside the system. Yeah. Right. I wonder, you made me think of this when you talked about Tahani and she's finishing her list and like she's the things that she needed to repair or redeem or chuva, whatever. Like I think repay the driveway. Was yeah. <laughs> but even like with her parents right. and her sister yeah. and all that, or, or like Eleanor was back with her friends. They've come back to like over however many Barambies. Now they're just co-inhabitants of the place. But it struck me at like the time, before the old system, how it broke, because if you got to the real good place, eventually your mind went numb because, so this was better, but still, I don't know, it made me think of like, they mentioned Shakespeare. Did you hear Shakespeare went through the portal? And then the response is like, well, thank God, because his plays, you know, aren't as good as the original ones. <laughs> they make some joke about the sequel to, I forget which one, yeah. <laughs> you know, some ridiculous thing, but it, you know, struck me as like there's something to it that like we have uh, I, well in Jewish tradition we have 120 years but whatever you know we have a lifespan for our creativity and maybe that's enough you know maybe that's it you know because it's bound that way and our life is the way it is we have to do it in that period that you know it's not that Shakespeare went on to continue to be great he did his great stuff <laughs> during his life and when he got to this place, that's the reward that he could be at forever. He couldn't recreate the creativity. Yeah. And this was my issue with the wave metaphor as being kind of the final word. If it really is all that it's just a different way for water to be for a little while. And again, the way William Jackson Harper said that line was so amazing. But if that's all that it was, you know, it doesn't really matter what state you're in, then what's really at stake, you know, in any of this, there's no choice, you don't get to choose which wave you're a part yeah. of, but there is so much more at stake, it matters, the choices each of them make about what they're going to do and when does matter. I think that it actually, like, that's what I want to believe about my existence. Yeah. And, and what I like about The Good Place generally is the sense that, okay, there's that 120 years, so to speak, that you say, but then there's something else, like there's sort of a lingering effect. I, do I think I'm going to have like infinite, that there's room for my consciousness? You know, the more time goes on, the more, even now, my thoughts, my projects are, I didn't invent them. They're situated in my time and place, you know, in my life and my relationships, but they're not utterly unique. And the universe could, you know, would probably more or less be about the same if I didn't have them. And the ocean would, would be okay without one little drop of water. It'd be pretty much the same. But we do get the sense from ourselves, I don't myself, speaking for myself, and then from the show that like it does matter. Tahani being an architect matters. Yeah. And when Chidi decides it's time, it does matter. I don't know yeah. how you would know 
I mean, it does flip back to the individual, like, how how do you know? And in that sense, I like that. That was the one thing, like, really, like, Jason's going to know when he's... Like, that seems sort of a silly way to know when you're done, the way Jason did it. Right. And if you're still you, you know, you're you're not some abstract soul. So right. I, like, I like the Talmudic story. The one dimension of the Talmudic story I do like is the sense that it's not really up to Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi at all, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's God and there's people around him and his voice actually isn't there, which I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but it's it's cool that it suggests a picture where that's the case. Yeah. And But I do like that Tahani gets to decide, like, I'm not going to finish. I am actually going to stay around forever. Do She's in a way Eliyahu also, like, she gets to... Right. I wonder, though, I'm just thinking about, you You know, this, this comment is a response to what you said, less about a show that... We don't all get to be Shakespeare or Rabbi Udanasi or even Eliyahu or Janet. But the impact, actually, maybe this does tie to the show, like the impact that you have. Look, I know this about you in terms of the type of person, the type of rabbi you are, you know, from watching you do it for decades. It's like the little moments that make a difference. Like I like at the end, the guy finds a misdelivered piece of mail and brings it to Michael. Now that's a trivial, you know, that sets up the joke at the end and maybe it's trivial, but it's you as a person, John, and you as a rabbi have done so many simple kindnesses for so many people. I wouldn't underestimate the power of like one drop of water. Yeah, there are billions of people, but right. No, no, I'm saying, yeah, right. In that sense, I don't, I don't like about the water because I do think, right. The ocean is different and in some ways and you know, you and I, in many ways, both in our professional visions and and to some degree in our personalities, have similar projects. And at least for a time, our projects were overlapping quite a bit. And certainly there needed to be more, you know, those projects are worth having more than one person. Yeah. And and no one of us, right? We were both teaching teenagers in Jewish day schools for for a good long time. And it's not... You know, we could only do as much, touch as many as we could. It was great to be a part of the same thing. And yet, yeah, but that, it's supposed to be, yeah. Right. That's powerful, though. I know just two weeks ago, I went to ordination at the seminary. A new batch of rabbis were bringing in because it was of a great population of students that I taught in high school in Chicago. Like, of, separate from who's ever going to be a mid-career rabbi, the last of that group of students who were going to rabbinical school got ordained like two Thursdays ago. Wow. And that's a different project. You know, some of my projects were about institution building or curriculum, right? But as I sat there at this powerful ceremony, watching someone become, watching a whole bunch of people become a rabbi, but one that I had this connection to from that time, felt that power of the drop of water, knowing that, I mean, there are lots of reasons this person became a rabbi. (laughs) And I was one teacher in the piece of that, but it feels like a great project that I know that I now have a couple of handfuls of colleagues that come from the educational institutions in which, which I worked. There's a power to that. These are great people. They were great kids. They're great people. They're going to be great rabbis. And you know, the credit for that is them. But it was an honor to spend, play a small part in that. Mm. Uh, you know, There's something about where I sit now in my mid-50s looking at that saying, all right, right there was a project. You know, I helped... I helped nudge someone along the way to a career serving the Jewish people and improving Jewish lives and being there for people when they need it. It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those rare moments as a teacher where you feel like, ah, yeah, it was totally worth it. Yeah. The Talmud story is nice because it, in a way, hinges both of those things so nicely that, as you say, the, the heavens are requesting him and the earth is requesting him. And, you know, the earth's request is, you know, teach us a little more and the heavens request is presumably help be part of this big picture, you know, in a bigger way. And that's always, that's the perennial question. That's my personal perennial question. And it seems, I read that into the Good Place show also, and that they, you know, they finally, there is a universe perspective, but really it's about, they leave the points and the the universal scale behind. And ultimately, yeah. and this is the decision that in some sense, the, I don't know, does the maidservant in the Talmud story make the same yeah. choice? I think the maidservant is like our, are four main characters. Because mm. in the story, it's sort of like a tie. Mm. God wants Rabbi Unanasi to come to the whatever it is, whatever's the next place. And the sages have the power of prayer to keep him alive. And they're like deadlocked. And it's the maidservant. She breaks the tie. And not just breaks the tie. They don't, they don't even ask her to break the tie. She uses, you know, she's clever 
It's often in Talmudic stories. It's Jason. Uh, what? It's Jason. Oh, maybe. Right, throwing the pot, right? Maybe. But there's Follows a wisdom. Cocktail. There's a wisdom to it. You know, and 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 you know, what's interesting is, you know, the place of women in rabbinic society is not a contemporary thing, but when female characters show up in stories, they often play a pivotal role in a wise one. Whether it's in the good place, it's part Jason, it's part Chidi, it's part Tahani, it's part Eleanor. They come together and do it and they get some partners, but they change the system. And here the maidservant doesn't change the system, but she breaks the tie. There's a power to that. And it seems that the st- from the perspective of the narrator, this was the right thing. Mm-hmm. Say anything else about the story? No. Any of this things? Good. I'm what about you? What did you have? Well, I was just going to, and this, and I don't mean this as any sort of like series wrapping thing, but I was very struck by the number of times in the episode people do say it's all good or none of this is bad or, you know, it was good, oh. this labeling. And I was thinking about pairing that with Eleanor's statement at the end about it's uncertain as to what's going to happen to Michael and, and Janet's statement about the true joy is in the mystery. It's incredible that Janet could say that, that I like that labeling and that it is sort of a return to beginnings in the sense that we hear, I hear Genesis one, and it was good at the very beginning before anything had a chance to fulfill its possibility at all. And how at the end of every week, the last moment before Shabbat, which is going to be, you know, our little glimpse of perfection that we quote God looking at everything and saying, it's very good. It's all good. It's all very good. And I just, I, I wondered, I would love to be able to ask Michael Schur if there was any little hint of that kind of echo. But I also was thinking in a, pra- in a practical way that it's not just important for things to be good, but for people to, to hear that they're good when they are. Yeah. And there's this teaching of Rabbi Akiva, as I'm sure I've quoted here. It's great that human beings are created in the image of God, and it's even greater that God let us know by telling us that we're created uh. in the image of God. And hearing about something in a in a challenging dilemma like they have here, that it's good or none of it was bad, it was all good. It's just a nice gift, I think, also to... I found it as a personal gift, you know, to think about yeah. that. I mean, to hear it, to have someone say it to me, and then what, when do I need to say that? And there is kind of an ethical imperative. There are plenty of bad things that are out there and currently happening, but to, to label the good ones is, yeah, that was a nice thing, a nice thing for the tone of this episode. I like that connection. I'm struck by the contrast also, though, that these statements come at the end. They designed it. It happened. They tested it for, I want to say billions of years, but it's really, you know, thousands of baramis, right? Yeah. Whatever that equates to. I have to use it to the right scale. <laughs> but the difference is, though, God says this at the beginning in the Torah. Mm. And in some ways, the story of the Torah is, despite God's satisfaction with the design, there are lots of problems. Mm. And some of it is humanity. People eat from the tree they're not supposed to. Cain kills Abel. People turn evil. Many times the world's destroyed and restarted. God picks one people. I will give one people will get it right. And, you know, the Israelites spend many chapters irking God by making them not the choice God would have. So there's a way in which God's statements are I don't know, idealistic and premature, mm. <laughs> whereas here they tested it. You know, they tested, I don't know if it's the scientific method or, you know, they didn't tweak it. They didn't show a lot of tweaking. I mean, there were some changes here and there, but something was really broken. The the voice came through that said, we have to change it. They lobbied for it and got it. And then they ran it for a long time and worked out the kinks. Vicky worked out the kinks. Yeah, yeah. Even though the demons, these new demons today, you know, aren't really acting. (laughs) They're just, they don't know what acting is. So I don't know if I can do any more neighborhoods, she says, right? But there's a surety. And I think the Torah is like speculative. You know, some Mm -hmm. of the, the rest of the Torah is like, yeah, it might not be as good as, it could have been good, but there's still other parts to it, which is like the challenge of, you know, the question for us, how do we live the way we're supposed to live on this planet? before the good place, which the show addresses some, but only with the goal of the good place, Mm -hmm. you know, and Judaism addresses differently. But uh, I do think, I do like the parallel you connected, but you know, the the connection you, 
Yeah, and I think that that's why Michael gets, you know, in your spirit, I would say that's why Michael goes back. It's something of that consciousness, as everybody else who's gone to redo their tests, you know, has to go do more good. Yeah. Well, we bring this particular conversation about this particular episode to a close, but not all conversations about The Good Place and not the Tove podcast, which is called Tove, which means good. And Elliot, great to talk to you today. It was fun. And I'm glad... This isn't the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So more to come. I'm excited to see what the creativity generates. There's certainly plenty more to touch on. Yes. We've seen the spreadsheet, so I know some of the, <laughs> some of the ideas that are percolating. Excellent. Thanks for talking, Elliot. All right. And that's a wrap on this episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. And a special thank you to those who have arrived here from the very beginning of our podcast. As we've said a few times in this episode, it's not the end of the podcast, not quite. So it's still worthwhile to subscribe, to give us a good rating, and to spread the word to people you know who might find Tove interesting or entertaining. If you've joined us partway through, maybe grabbing the latest episode on your app, we've got one for every episode since Chapter 1 of The Good Place. We would love to hear from you, whether it's an idea you'd like us to address out loud, or something we can write back about. Email us at tove at tovegoodplace.com or do it through social media at tovegoodplace. Our website is tovegoodplace.com and we've got notes on this episode with the texts we've referred to and also all kinds of other links and resources and short explanations. Elliot Goldberg is on Twitter at Elliot Goldberg with two T's and an underscore in there. And I'm John Spirisavet at RabbiJS3 on various social media, and with longer form material at RabbiJohn.net. Thank you once again for listening. My twist on what Mark Evan Jackson says, who plays Sean, at the end of the NBC Good Place podcast. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.